The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, and this is Episode 8 of Green Sports Pod. Actually, today is a two-for-one special, as we have two separate interviews for you. Leading off is Maggie Bedore, a producer at The Years Project, a company that creates and disseminates informative, short, climate change-themed videos. We will discuss, among other things, how sports fits into their work. In part two, Kevin Wilhelm of Seattle-based Sustainable Business Consulting joins us. Green sports is a significant part of his consulting practice, but today our focus is politics. You see, Kevin has a new book out, How to Talk to the Other Side, Finding Common Ground in the Time of Coronavirus, Recession, and Climate Change. It's about ways to break the partisan divides that are plaguing us. My attitude before going into that conversation? Good luck with that. But first up, it's Maggie Bedore. And like most environmental journalists, her career, of course, started by covering beer. I think I was always really interested in climate change and specifically what sort of solutions were out there to reduce emissions, including some of the internships I had before I was working in strictly environmental reporting. Like I wrote for this newspaper called Real Detroit Weekly, and we were all assigned to go out and find stories about beer. So I wrote about how beer that is from local breweries actually can help reduce emissions because it's not shipped as far. And actually a lot of these breweries really care about renewable resources and stuff like that. So I was always really interested in climate solutions. And I mean, I actually don't even drink beer. And so it was a really funny story to be assigned because I was 19 at the time. I even legally couldn't drink the beer, but I still went out and found the climate angle. And so that was pretty cool. Maggie graduated from green beer to writing for a variety of green publications most notably Tree Hugger. Eventually, she moved over to the television side, becoming a producer on Years of Living Dangerously, the Emmy Award-winning long-form documentary series about the effects of climate change that are happening in real time. This was back in 2016. Years of Living Dangerously is a television show that had two seasons. The first one was on Showtime, and the second one was on National Geographic. and Each story that we cover features a celebrity who kind of walks you through the story, almost like the news correspondent. And I think the celebrities are really great because not only are people interested in them, but they're kind of a stand-in for the non-expert in the climate arena. They get to ask all the questions like, what does this mean for me or our future or stuff like that? And the audience can really identify with their experience of learning all this stuff for the first time. If you haven't seen Years of Living Dangerously, Both seasons are available on YouTube. The episodes are especially relevant today. Anyway, I was very disappointed when the producers could not make a deal with a network for a season three. I haven't seen viewership numbers, but my sense was the ratings were low. 
It turns out that the cable universe, with its relatively older audience, might not have been the ideal medium for Years of Living Dangerously. So, the producers pivoted, finding a new way to deliver their content. In the process of shooting season two, we created a whole bunch of really great short videos, and we started throwing them up on Facebook, and they started really picking up a lot of steam. And it was really exciting to see this whole other audience that might not be your typical cable television viewer learning about climate change and getting really excited about solutions. And so we realized there was this big opportunity to create a bunch of content for social media and reach a whole new audience. That's what we've been really focused on ever since. I have to give our executive producer, Joel Bach, a lot of credit for really going after this strategy because I think when we first saw some of the types of videos that we were emulating after we were like, oh man, some of these other internet publishers that are just doing video, are, they're kind of cheesy. They felt kind of cheap or goofy or jokey. And he was like, no, we can make really great climate videos that'll be serious and fact-checked and look cool and people will watch them. And it totally worked. I think there was some skepticism at first, but it's been a really great strategy. The new format, now renamed The Years Project, has covered a wide range of climate issues in short, fast-paced, yet substantive videos. One of Maggie's favorite stories brought her to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. We went to the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, which actually has some of the last and largest standing rainforest of that region. But the work is going on there is that young people are not really necessarily part of the land owning communities. And so they're moving away from the rainforest. And that's really a problem because if this area loses its population of forest communities and no one continues to like have ownership over the forest, then there'll be a massive potential for deforestation. And so the program just move in. And we know that indigenous peoples and forest communities are actually much better protectors of rainforests than any other sort of management approach, like just making parks or areas that don't have people in them are very hard to prevent deforestation in. So this story was so great because with the Rainforest Alliance and some of the other community members who realized this was going to be a problem if all their young people moved away have started doing these educational programs to create jobs and livelihoods and really empower high school students to get involved in forest conservation. And what's so cool about it is the young people learn to use computers and mobile technology and suddenly they have a bunch of skills that their elders whom they respect very much, don't necessarily have. So it became a really great way for these young people to feel connected to their community again and not just want to move out and go to big cities. And the young people in that were just incredible. So what about sports? To me, for the green sports movement to really be able to make a difference on climate, it must be able to effectively use the megaphone of the media. For too long, teams and leagues have greened their games, lead-certified venues, on-site solar and the like. But according to NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, 99% of fans do not go to games. Rather, they consume sports on their TVs, on phones, on computers. But environmental messaging, climate messaging, has been woefully lacking on sports broadcasts to date. And while the year's project is not a sports broadcast, 
they are finding that when they do air sports content, it is of interest to their audience. So we covered how the National Hockey League has been working to reduce their emissions and their energy consumption across arenas and ice rinks. And there's a ton of opportunity for it because on one hand, putting an ice rink inside a building in theory is a very, very energy intensive thing to do. But on the other hand, there's a ton of progress that's been made on a bunch of different levels of how to reduce the amount of energy that's needed and also potentially for rinks to be powered by renewables. So it's pretty exciting. We did a video on that and it was cool to see ice sports featured. As we've seen with the recent boycotts of NBA playoff games and WNBA matchups, and then the subsequent boycotts by Major League Baseball teams, the NHL, and more, in reaction to the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, athletes are speaking and acting on political and social issues now more than any time in the last 50 years. While the climate crisis has understandably not yet engendered the same type of response from athletes, a few have begun to speak out with more hopefully on the way. If and when more athletes become climate activists, Bedore believes they will be powerful messengers. I think they're really exciting messengers. I think anybody who's willing to speak about their own values and their own experiences and the kinds of actions that they themselves are interested in taking I think we're living in this moment where people really look for that kind of authenticity and hearing from someone themselves is really powerful right now. That's why we're seeing so many celebrities get these really big Instagram or Twitter followings because fans want to hear directly from them. And so while in the climate world, we talk a lot about how important systemic change is, which it truly is, we can't really solve the climate crisis without it. I do think that for influencers to be taking personal actions, that then their fans and other people who follow them might be inspired to also take those actions. I think that can be really powerful. The green sports world has begun thanks to COVID, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Jacob Blake, and too many more to mention, to publicly discuss the intersection of social, racial, and now climate injustice over the past few months. The YEARS Project is also making a concerted effort to make the climate racial injustice connection. Even before the pandemic hit, we were really excited to start trying to really tell a lot more frontline stories. And the reality that we understand is that fighting climate change and fighting racial injustice are deeply connected. And so while we're very committed to continuing to talk about climate change, we also really want to help people understand how that is connected to racial injustice and to continue to cover stories that tease out those interconnections. And we're actually starting a new series that is pretty focused on that connection between air pollution and redlining and the really negative health outcomes that disproportionately affect black and brown communities. So we really wanna elevate those stories and we also really wanna elevate the voices of the climate activists within the black community that have previously really not been covered enough by the mainstream media. 
And I think there is a very unfortunate misconception that people in non-white communities don't care about the environment. But the reality is, is they care about the environment very, very much. And there are all kinds of non-white led environmental groups that are basically just sidelined and don't get enough funding and don't get enough attention and don't get enough media stories. So we're trying to go out and talk to those groups and say, wow, look at all this work that they've already done. They've already been here pushing against these extractive industries and pushing against pipelines in their communities and fossil fuel plants in their neighborhoods. So we're trying to elevate those stories more. And I think we've done a pretty good job in the past, but we're trying to make it an even bigger focus. Another focus for the year's project, and for that matter, its predecessor, Years of Living Dangerously, has been carbon pricing, most commonly known as a carbon tax. Okay, this is going to get a bit wonky, but stay with me here. The basic idea is that the true cost of fossil fuels, the true cost of carbon, is not reflected in the price of oil, natural gas, or coal. Those unpriced costs, known as externalities, include the cost of dealing with climate change, increased healthcare costs due to pollution, and much, much more. If a tax is levied, that will make renewables much more cost-effective versus fossil fuels and will accelerate their deployment as well as accelerating the development of new clean energy technologies. Problem is that in the United States, the word tax is actually seen as a four-letter word by Republicans and other small government conservatives. An alternative approach to carbon pricing that is gaining steam in the U.S. and elsewhere is known as carbon fee and dividend. In this model, instead of a tax, in which the revenue raised goes to the federal treasury for the Congress to then spend, the revenues would instead be sent as a dividend to every U.S. household via direct deposit on a monthly basis. The amount of the dividend would be the same for each household. Economists, both conservative and liberal, have endorsed carbon fee and dividend because, for the conservatives, it doesn't add to the size of government. And for progressives, according to an independent analysis, the lower two-thirds of the income scale at least will receive more in dividends than they will spend in higher prices due to the fee. Hopefully that wasn't too wonky. Citizens Climate Lobby, or CCL, is a wonderful group that is advocating for a bipartisan carbon fee and dividend bill in Congress. The YEARS Project has covered CCL's efforts. And full disclosure, I volunteer for CCL, as does Maggie. In fact, that's how we met. So Maggie, how did you get involved with CCL? I'm glad you asked because I actually didn't know about Citizens Climate Lobby until my colleagues started reporting out a story about Citizens Climate Lobby. So the YEARS Project, we're a nonprofit. We don't necessarily endorse any individual candidates or anything like that. But we definitely do cover all of the different climate policies that are going through Congress. And carbon fee and dividend is one of the solutions that we covered. And it's definitely has lots of data behind it to show that it would be both equitable and successful at reducing emissions. And the story that we created about a citizen's climate lobby which features Bradley Whitford of the West Wing, is available on our YouTube page. So 
I hope that anyone who's interested in that will go and check it out. It's a really great story and it's all about bipartisanship. And we didn't think very much about what it would mean for that particular episode to air after the election, but it aired almost immediately after Donald Trump was elected. So having this conversation about climate and bipartisanship felt so much more important in that moment than we realized it would. Speaking of President Trump, it has not been easy for Maggie or her year's project colleagues to tell stories that extol this climate advancement or that during the most anti-environmental administration in modern U.S. history. But they persist. And that's exactly why the year's project should be bookmarked and its content watched and frequently. Right now, we've definitely been in a little bit of a difficult situation where we feel a lot of obligation to cover all of the bad stuff that is happening with the current administration and the environment. And that has created less space to cover some of the positive things that are happening in the world. So as much as we can go out and find positive stories about people doing great things, their communities or cool new solutions or other approaches to mitigating climate change, those are stories that we want to be able to tell more of. Our coverage of frontline communities and non-white communities has just started. So we certainly intend to do a lot more of that, but I think it's something we probably could have done more of in the past. So we're always looking for those stories as well. Thanks to Maggie Bedore for sharing The Year's Project story. To check them out, please visit theyearsproject.com. Now we move on to another conversation that has green sports elements, but that ends up being about, yes, politics. I spoke with Kevin Wilhelm, CEO of Seattle-based Sustainable Business Consulting. They have helped companies like Amazon, Expedia, and sports teams like the Seattle Sounders realize business value through better social and environmental programs. But our talk was not so much about the intersection of green and sports. Rather, we spoke about politics because his new book, co-authored by Natalie Hoffman, is How to Talk to the Other Side, Finding Common Ground in the Time of Coronavirus, Recession, and Climate Change. My first thought when I saw the title of the book was, Good luck with bridging the red-blue divide. With that dose of skepticism, I asked Kevin why a sustainability consultant wanted to write a book about how to talk to the other side. With this book, what we tried to do is really go out and understand at the core. We did surveys, we did focus groups, we did interviews with people on both sides of not only the political aisle, but crossing the urban-rural divide between environmentalists and business people to truly understand how can we talk to one another? And so the book was really kind of this feeling of, oh my gosh, we have to somehow return to a way where we can at least talk to one another to solve the problems. And I think we're seeing that play out right now is that when we started writing the book and when we released the book, we kind of knew that there was going to be tension between public health and the economy and that things were going to get politicized that shouldn't. So the book was really trying to put out kind of a positive path forward of how can we, instead of it being an either or decision, can we make it a yes and and win-win solutions in the same way we've done with sports, sustainability, and business? I got to tell you, translating win-win sustainable business solutions to our hyper-polarized political landscape sounded a bit kumbaya-ish to me. 
But I also know that if we don't try to talk and listen to the other side, then where are we? So how does the book go about showing us how to talk to the other side? Well, we basically broke the book up into three sections. The first part was how do you find common ground with someone that kind of start the conversation? Because you can't just launch into a conversation trying to persuade someone about their ideology without having a relationship at first. It just doesn't work. The second section of the book was all about putting real-life practical stories where people on very polar opposite sides, where each other's throats, could find those win-win solutions that would advance both of their causes. And then the third part of the book was really more about allyship and how to have a difficult conversation. So it was much more the nuts and bolts of having that, which I think people aren't really interested in, but it's really more about authentic listening and understanding what's at the core of someone's argument. So when you hear someone say, I don't believe in science, whether it's about climate change or whether it's about wearing masks, when you strip down it, they do believe in science. They believe that the technology that works on their iPhone, they believe in the technology that works in their microwave, their TV, they get science, they go to doctors. What's at their core is an anxiety and a fear that Something that by agreeing to one side, it's going to negatively impact their way of life, their decision making and everything. You see that at the capitals where people show up with guns saying, I want freedom. Yet some of them drove there in cars, obeying the speed limits, wearing seatbelts, had child safety protectors and car seats in the back. They follow the rule of law, but they're there because there's something that's at the core that we're getting that. And I think that what we tried to do in the book was realize that that's where people are and give kind of tools and techniques to not try and get kumbaya at all, but to really understand where that frustration and anxiety is coming from. And by hearing it, then putting forth solutions that could address that. I must say my skepticism was still healthy at that point, but how to talk to the other side does offer up several examples of groups who are at each other's throats who eventually got to a win-win solution. First, Kevin takes readers to coal country in an effort to bridge the minor environmentalist divide. We looked at another group in our book in kind of the Appalachia area of the coal country, and you've got the coal miners who are saying, we don't want your damn environmentalist climate people in here because don't you understand, you're killing our livelihood, you're killing our communities. So then we started asking, so what really is truly killing your communities? And they were saying, well, it's the lack of jobs. And it was what was happening in the communities to say, Lack of jobs was hurting the community, the tax base, people were getting depressed, there was more opioids, there was more addiction, and then they didn't have the resources to deal with it. They continued to kind of be this negative reinforcing loop. But when you asked them what was actually killing the coal entry, they knew that it was mountaintop removal that was using technology as opposed to a number of miners, or it was natural gas being transferred over to most power plants because it was cheaper to burn than coal. However, the argument had gotten environmentalists versus coal. And so we went in and said, well, what you're really talking about is jobs and financial security. So let's find ways. And I think you outlined this a lot in your work is where can we put these blue collar skilled workers to work? Can we put them doing energy efficiency projects to doing solar panels on roofs? Can we retrain them? to have good, high-paying jobs that support the renewable energy economy that brings back all of the things that are at the core of their anxiety as opposed to trying to have a climate discussion or a discussion about renewable energy versus coal. The next example comes from the Bluegrass State, Kentucky. 
This time, the combatants are local business interests and environmentalists fighting over a dam. We have a great example in one of our chapters about business environmentalists. And this is an area in Kentucky where several environmental groups have been going and saying, here's one of these old canals that was built in the 1800s. There's an old dam that's on one of these canals that is failing and the environmentalists have been trying to get it removed to open up fish habitat and potentially open up for recreation and bring economic development. But they kept coming in with a solution before listening to the people. So what the Nature Conservancy did was they actually went, they sat with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and they said, look, if we bring this dam back, it can open up economic development for this region that will bring jobs and it'll diversify the industry. And it'll also bring the fish habitat and also bring recreation. And what the Senate Majority Leader was saying was, in general, I support it, but I can't have you kick up a hornet's nest and get all my constituents really ticked off about this. So you need to go about this smart. So the Nation Conservancy went about it in Kentucky about going and providing a whole bunch of listening sessions to the constituents about how to do it. And in years past, what would happen is someone would come with a proposal. They would give a presentation and say, this is how we're going to do it. And this is why it's important. And there would be the back and forth disagreements. But by starting with the listening sessions, people, of course, got really ticked off. But they started to hear that my granddaddy worked at that dam and my dad worked at that dam. And so I have like a strong connection to that dam. And so they started saying, well, what way could we honor that connection? And it'd be like, well, I'd love for you to put up a museum with the photos that people worked there. I'd love there to be plaques. I'd love there to be education about what this did. And they started saying, oh, okay, well, we can totally do that. Hearing that Mitch McConnell, the highly partisan Republican Senate Majority Leader, and the Nature Conservancy were able to come to a deal is heartening. It shows that listening and compromising towards getting a win-win can work. But it's also depressing at the same time, as this kind of thing seems like such a rarity. I mean, where was Nature Conservancy Mitch when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016. He was nowhere to be found. Instead, Moscow Mitch famously didn't even bring him up for a vote. I know, that doesn't sound very much like how to talk to the other side, which, by the way, you can buy on Amazon, and it's well worth the read. Speaking of Amazon, Kevin cites the Seattle-based behemoth as an example of a company who has likely listened to the other side, as in many of their stakeholders, on the issue of climate change. You're seeing that out here in Seattle, where the new hockey team, the Seattle Kraken, Amazon, who hasn't gotten involved at all kind of in sports, now has built the Climate Pledge Arena that put their naming rights onto it. And by doing that, it all of a sudden normalizes the idea of making a climate pledge. And you need all these people who watch hockey and they understand that hockey is the sport that's most going to be impacted by climate change. But by getting your average Joe and Jan who would come to a game and getting them to make a pledge on climate and how do they take it back, they will do that. And then if they can take that to that next level about what else you're going to be doing on the social justice side, that's why I think sports has that unique opportunity and element to really push the contours of these conversations. I push back a bit, saying that Amazon's track record on climate thus far is mixed at best. 
there are plenty of environmental nonprofits who have taken them to task. But putting my how to talk to the other side hat on, I also said that by going public with the high profile naming of Climate Pledge Arena, Amazon has basically made an offer to their stakeholders, saying in effect, hold us to account. And that gives activist groups an opening to do just that and negotiate with them in good faith ways that will hopefully lead to Amazon making even more aggressive and tangible commitments on climate. Here's Kevin's take. It's better if you get to the game late than not to get there at all. And honestly, yes, up until a few years ago, Amazon hadn't been a leader in it. But being in town here, I mean, Amazon's sustainability department is probably bigger than any Fortune 500 company in the world. It's probably bigger than the next 10 combined. They have built into it. Now, is it showing up in all their operations? No, but Walmart, it took them a decade to get there. And it's taking so many organizations a long time. So I think, again, it's that let's not let perfect be the enemy of good. And let's move the needle because things are pushing too much. But you know what? When Amazon put it out there that they were going to be carbon neutral by 2050, that all of a sudden was a massive change because we saw within full disclosure, we have probably 15 or 20 major retailers as clients. And we were all telling them that they needed to do these things within their supply chain to not only clean up their social record, but clean up their environmental record and start putting through all these different policies. And they all kept saying, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. But if Amazon were to do that, oh my God, then we'd all have to get on board right away. And then Amazon did it. And now they're like, okay, I guess we got to do it. Things just like, how do we change consumer preferences? How do we can change shipping patterns? All these different things that they just kept saying, well, we can't do it until Amazon has done it. Well, now Amazon's made that pledge and they put a stake in the ground and Microsoft put a stake in the ground saying we're going to do it by 2040. And then you're getting ports and cities and communities that are all starting to commit to it. And then you get to sports teams like the Seattle Founders, which they declared they were going to do it in 2019. The whole book was really written about we all have human nature that we kind of forget about. No one likes being yelled at. No one likes being told what to do. So let's not do that. Let's find ways that constructively that can help the person on the other side who has real fears, real anxiety, and hopes and aspirations, help them achieve those. And if you can do that through the work you're doing, then the barriers will come down and the possibilities are much greater. Even in this dangerous political, racial, social, and public health climate, pun intended, that we're in right now, I believe that talking and listening respectfully to the other side is the best way to make durable change happen over the long haul. Oh, you can make change with the support of only your party, only your tribe. But when the other party, the other tribe, wins power, they will do their best to undo your changes. A win-win bipartisan solution will be much more difficult to reverse. Finding a bipartisan carbon pricing solution and talking and listening to everybody, even the most vehement climate deniers, is in fact the deeply embedded mantra of Citizens Climate Lobby. That's the nonpartisan group for which I volunteer that is advocating for the carbon fee and dividend legislation detailed in the first part of today's podcast. I am all in on the CCL ethos, on the ethos Kevin describes in How to Talk to the Other Side. This frustratingly takes time. 
CCL has been pushing carbon fee and dividend for the better part of a decade. Only one Republican in the current House of Representatives has co-sponsored the carbon pricing bill that CCL favors. But they are in the carbon pricing game for the long haul. So they will keep talking, keep listening, keep tweaking the bill until a bipartisan carbon fee and dividend bill passes through the Congress and is signed by a president. And yet, I am also human and see what's going on in the world. So now I also volunteer to help ensure that Joe Biden becomes the 46th president of the United States and volunteer for the Democrats to win control of the Senate. Because while I will continue to work hard for long-term bipartisan climate solutions, I am convinced that we will only be able to get there with a Democrat in the White House and a democratically controlled Senate and House, at least at this time, especially considering who the Democrats are running against. Because time, in terms of beginning meaningful process on climate, is running short. And so for now, on climate, we need to be able to talk to the other side when we have leverage. I want to thank Maggie Bedore and Kevin Wilhelm for joining us. And I want to thank you for listening. As mentioned before, you can buy Kevin's book, How to Talk to the Other Side, on Amazon. Finally, if you are not registered to vote, go to vote.org and they will help make that happen. In the meantime, thanks for listening and see you next time on Green Sports Pod. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.